You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Dash and Shay. I am Eric Barton, and I am the downtown campus pastor for Bethel Bible Church. And I want to add my greeting I'm so glad that you're here. I'm delighted that you have found yourself in our midst this morning. We believe that you are not here by accident, that God has divinely directed your steps to be in this place this morning, which means he has a word for you among his people, by his spirit, in his word. And so that's sort of the expectation that we want to set. We believe that God speaks in the present tense When we open his word and gather as his people and listen to his spirit. So I want to also just echo the shock and awe and gratitude of what took place here in our building last night. If you were not here, you missed an incredible deal. We had 810 people come through our doors to visit our live nativity. Stephanie Mazingo and her awesome team of leaders and volunteers had people building props and manning livestock had over 90 people volunteered in leading and serving and sort of staffing the various places as tour guides, as shepherds, as wise men. We even had like an entire, oh, a a sheep fold of many of our toddlers dressed up as sheep. And if they did a good job as sheep, they got sheep treats at the end of each showing. It was marvelous. So you got to see all these two and three-year-olds going bah, bah, and then getting little sheep treats. And I tried to sneak in and the shepherd drove me away. But it was a great night, and it was a wonderful time to be a part of uh, influence and impact in the community as we proclaim the good news, the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. And we find ourselves in the Advent season where we commemorate, celebrate, and contemplate the coming of Christ, the incarnation where God becomes flesh. And all this Advent season, we've been talking about the astonishing, miraculous, wondrous thing that God has done in giving grace. We call it surprising grace. It's sort of the overarching title of our Advent series, surprising grace. And to sort of deliver that, we have chosen to speak through, teach through the five women that make up the heritage, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. So just to sort of reset our stage, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These women that we're going to continue to study are all the recipients of God's unmerited grace, his blessing and his favor. Matthew writes this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he is the rightful heir the completer of the promise to Abraham. He is the rightful heir of the kingly line of David. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We talked about Tamar two weeks ago. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. We talked about Rahab last week. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. We'll be spending our time this morning talking about Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
talking about all these women because they are surprising in their own right. All of these women mentioned in the genealogy are Gentile women. You got two Canaanites, a Moabite, and a Hittite. Not exactly who you would think would be the mothers of Jesus. Or, since they are in the line of Jesus, you'd sort of expect Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, that he would mention sort of the more famous matriarchal roles of Israel. You know, Sarah, wife of Abraham, Rebecca, wife of Isaac, Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob. But no, he chooses these to make a very specific point. Each one of these Gentile women find themselves bound to and united with a Jewish man who will be the hope of their world. We've already talked about these, but Tamar places her faith in what God will do through Judah to provide Messiah, the anointed one who will be the savior of the world. Rahab unites herself to the program of Joshua, who will be the conqueror of the land and who will defeat all of the enemies that Rahab experiences and understands. Today we're going to study the book of Ruth, where Ruth trusts in God's provision of a redeemer. Next week we'll talk about Bathsheba, where she places her faith in God's promise of providing a king. And then in two weeks on Christmas Eve, we will talk about Mary, the lone uh, Jewish girl who places her trust in God to provide a son. So all of these, we see that God will provide a Messiah, a conqueror, a redeemer, a king, and a son which sort of begs the question here on the front end, do we know this kind of God who has provided all of these in Christ? This morning, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about a woman named Ruth who comes from a context of questionable morals. But the good news of the gospel is that morals, good behavior, never saved a single human soul, not one, not ever. And equally important, the flip side of that coin is that immorality, bad behavior, has never disqualified a single person from God's grace. All of us are within reach. In fact, that's sort of the big idea, the takeaway for our entire Christmas series, is that sin, although it be a huge deal, sin is no match for God's grace. Sin is an enormous problem. It is the, the root of all the error and evil in the world and yet, it is no match for God's grace. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, please to turn with me to the book of Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth in the Old Testament. The book of Ruth, now I want to give just very briefly, to give us a, sort of a, an on-ramp and some context into the book of Ruth. We've already started two weeks ago talking about Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. We learned about Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then last week we went all the way through and we got into Joshua in the beginnings of the conquest as the children of Israel come up out of Egypt and begin to take the land and we were introduced to a woman named Rahab. Well, we continue through the book of Joshua and you might be aware that we come to the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges and the book of Ruth actually happen concurrently. We think, we don't know for sure, but we think that the book of Ruth happens about the exact same time as the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. So that would be um, somewhere around the time of uh, Judges 6 and 7 and 8. But we don't know that for sure. It may be much, much later. It's hard to know. But we know that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the way that the Old Testament was written, that the writer is doing something. Now, you sort of have to really grasp this 
to understand all that Ruth is trying to communicate. In the book of Judges, as we come to the end of the book, after the story of Samson, who was the final judge in the period of the Judges, after Samuel, or Samson, sorry, which is in Judges 16, we come to these two really weird stories at the end of the book of Judges. They're really bizarre and hard to understand. In, the, in chapter 17 of Judges, we're introduced to a man named Jonathan, whose father is Gershom, whose father is Moses. So this is Moses' grandson. And what we find right away is that the entire nation of Israel, by the time of Moses' grandson, has gone completely off the rails. They are apostate. They have departed. They have completely left covenant faithfulness with God. Because Moses' grandson, Jonathan, has hooked up with a guy named Micah. And they have left Bethlehem, where they were living, and they traveled way up north, and they began to engage in pagan idolatry, and they started to mix that idolatry with the worship of the one true God. And so they even created a temple way up in an area called Laish, which is now called Dan, and they even made a temple, and they were conducting actual sacrifices there. It's a complete abomination. It's a very bad thing. They left Bethlehem, and they went and practiced idolatry. Well, the next story gets even worse. We're introduced to a traveler who comes through Bethlehem and he's escorted by his concubine. Now, a concubine is more like a business relationship. He gives her protection. She gives him offspring. It's not like a wife in those days. It's a little bit different of a situation there. But she is badly treated in Bethlehem. She's abused. She's accosted. She's beaten, and ultimately she's killed by the people who inhabit Bethlehem. It's really, really awful. And this guy responds, I'm sure, the way that you would. He cuts her into 12 pieces. Whoa! And he sends the 12 pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel to call them and to rally them to war against the evil people of the Benjamites who have done this horrible thing. And they come in war against their own tribe, and they almost utterly destroy the people of Benjamin. Whoa! This is how the book of Judges ends. Now, what we have to understand is that Hebrew literature always comes in threes. This is the first two stories of what we call the Bethlehem Trilogy. You got the story of Jonathan and Micah. They leave Bethlehem, and they go and practice idolatry way in the north. That's very bad. And then it gets very much worse. And the book of Ruth is the third story in the Bethlehem Trilogy. Are we tracking? Are you with me? Kind of have to have this... Because the book of Ruth is going to set us up for some incredible tension and a surprising swing. Because in Hebrew literature, always, 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 without exception, you have a story that comes in threes. And it'll start bad, it'll get much worse, and then it'll end in absolute horrifying circumstances. Or you might have a story that starts good, gets better, and then ends with absolute paradise. That's how Hebrew literature works, the triads. But you'll never, never, never find a story that starts bad, gets worse, and then ends in paradise. Never happened. And so with that, we're introduced to the book of Ruth. So Ruth chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 1. I'll read these first four verses. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn. He journeyed to the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. A little family vacation. Not exactly. They're leaving because of the famine. Now, that's instructive. Because remember, this is the third leg in the Bethlehem trilogy. Things are supposed to go from bad to worse to really awful. Uh-oh. 
This family of four is leaving Israel. They, they're leaving Bethlehem. The last time we heard about somebody doing that, it ended very, very badly for everybody involved. And now there's a family of four leaving Israel. In this age, God's only mandate and stipulation is stay in the land. That is the confines of my covenant blessing. Stay there. I will provide for you. Stay home. But they begin to think God might not come through this time. The famine's pretty bad. We have to go. And so they leave. They depart and they go east. Now the name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech. It means my God is king. My God is king is leaving the country of the covenant. This is bad. This is preparing us for something that's really not going to be good. Elimelech, and the name of his wife, was Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet. And the names of their two sons were Malan, or Mahlon, and Chilion. They're supposed to rhyme. Now, this may or may not have been their actual names. Malan, in Hebrew, means sickly. Most of you probably won't name your firstborn, Hey, pukey, come to papa. That's what his name means. It's like Anamachlon. It just sounds like a mouthful of unpleasantries, right? His name is Pukey, sickly, weakly. And his brother, Chilion, we think means something like wanting, yearning, pining. He's kind of a sissy. This is probably not what you name your kids, but these are what these two people's names are. They were Ephrathites. We were reminded from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. They didn't just pass through. They went and they stayed there. Now, what we have to understand is that Moab is the absolute worst of the worst of the enemies of Israel. Moab was a nation that was started in very inappropriate circumstances. After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family flee. Mrs. Lot turns back, is apparently turned to a pillar of salt. That leaves Lot and his two daughters. They run and hide in a cave. They hide in a cave in the Wadi of Zohar, and they think that the world has been destroyed, except for the three of them. And so his daughters do something. They get him all liquored up, have their way with him, and they each conceive. And from one daughter comes the nation of Ammon. One daughter comes the nation of Moab. So the entire nation's beginnings was the product of a nasty, incestuous, inappropriate relationship. The Moabites were the nation that as the children of Israel come up out of Egypt to try to come into the promised land, the king of Moab says, no, you shall not pass and won't let them through. And because of that, God says, "Mm, that was a bad call. Now you're cursed. For 10 generations, none of you Moabites will be allowed to enter the temple of God ever. So that was sort of a bad deal. Not only that, but Moab was the country that brought Israel low. When Balaam the prophet tries to curse Israel, he can't do it. Twice he fails. And so the third time he says, look, I can't curse these people in the book of Numbers. I'll bring in some long, tall sallies from Moab, and they will bring the Israelite men off of their game. And sure enough, it happens. It's the women from Moab that lead the men astray and begin to practice idolatry. Moab was the absolute worst, the most hated race and nationality and origin. The Israelites hated the Moabites. And yet, these four people in Israel, in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, are starving. 
things are about to get really bad. But you can stand in Bethlehem and you can look to the east right across the Dead Sea and you will see the plains of Moab. See, because Bethlehem actually looks more like the Texas Hill Country. Very rocky, very steep, rugged soil. A hard place to raise crops. But if you look across the Dead Sea to the plains of Moab, man, it looks like Kansas and Nebraska with fields of amber grain. It looks amazing. And so they look with their eyes, and they head out, and they go east, and they remain there. Well, verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, well, he died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. Ugh, that's not going to end well. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, which means like the back of the neck, or it might mean fawn, or it might mean uh, full head of hair. I don't know. That's a weird name, okay? And the name of the other was Ruth, which means friend or companion. We'll find out in chapter 4 that Ruth is actually married to Pukey, and Orpah had been married to Wanting, okay? So what could possibly go wrong there, right? They lived there about 10 years, and neither of them has a child. Well, what we'll find out later on is that both Mahlon and Kilion also die. And so Naomi is left, the one Jewish woman, with two Moabite daughters-in-law, none of which have children, and she is left absolutely destitute and desperate. We have to understand in our day and age, a widow was the most helpless and vulnerable person in society. She has no way to provide for herself, no lineage, no heritage that will come after her and look after her. And so she is desperate, and so she tells Orpah and Ruth to go back to Moab. Go back, and may Yahweh bless you. At least Naomi has kept her faith. She does not say, you go back to your homes, and may Molech and Chemosh, may they bless you. No, no, she says, if you're going to make it, Yahweh is going to have to bless you. Go back. And you know the story, perhaps you've heard it. Orpah and Ruth say, no, no, no. They lift up their voices and they wail and they cry. They say, no, we want to stay with you because what else are we going to do? And she says, no, 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 go back. It's terrible advice. Finally, Orpah says, okay, I've had enough. I'll, I'll go back. But Ruth says, I'm not going to hear this anymore. Your God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name of God, he will be my God. This is an astonishing confession. This pagan, Canaanite, Moabite woman rejects and renounces the gods of her nation, Chemosh and Molech, and she says, Yahweh will be my God, and the people of Israel will be my people. Naomi says, I guess I'm not going to hear anything other than this. Let's go back to Bethlehem together. And so they make the long journey back north and west to Bethlehem. And as they come into Bethlehem, all the people say, whoa, whoa, Naomi's back, and she's brought a Moabite with her. Is this not Naomi? And Naomi says, oh, no, no. Don't call me Naomi, which means sweet and pleasant. No, no, no. God, the covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh the Almighty, he has dealt harshly with me. He has brought calamity on me. Call me Mara, which means bitter. It's not my fault, even though I'm the one that actually left the confines of God's covenant. I left, yet she invokes the covenant-keeping name of God to say, he has failed me. That's Ruth 1. So just very quickly, in line, I want to give three quick implications because I think each one of these chapters is a wonderfully crafted scene. Secular scholars, biblical scholars agree that the book of Ruth is one of the greatest pieces of literature we have in existence. 
It's wonderfully symmetrical in four scenes, and each one of them is communicating something. So first thing we learn from Ruth chapter 1 is this. Stay on God's path even when there's a sensible detour. In fact, I would summarize or subcaption the book of Ruth thus, God's path. The whole book, all four chapters, is about God's path. So what we learn from chapter 1 is stay on God's path, stay in the land, even if it looks like there's a sensible detour. It might sound like good advice when Ruth and Orpah are told, go back to Moab, go back to your people, go back to your gods. It's horrible advice. Because you see, Ruth and Orpah, for whatever reason, for 10 years had not been able to conceive. And I'm sure they prayed and I'm sure they pined for a child. But in Moab, Chemosh, the god of the Canaanites, demanded the death of the firstborn. Horrifically, they would take the firstborn child and they would roast him alive in a brass bull on the fire. Horrible. So we think, oh, yeah, Naomi's being nicely pluralistic. And just, you go back to your folks, I'll go back to my folks. No, that was terrible advice. Because if Ruth is able to remarry and have a child, that child will die in a horrific way. It's bad advice. So stay on God's path, even when there seems to be a sensible detour. Number two, stay on God's path, even when it seems to lead nowhere. We don't see all of the scenarios and all the circumstances that God and his sovereignty has worked out. I'm sure that Naomi thought she was going back to an early grave and a life of shame and scorn. She had no idea the providence and the blessing that God had in mind. Number three, stay on God's path. Be mindful of the companions that God sends for your journey. <laughs> Naomi tried as hard as she could to get rid of Ruth. Oh, the embarrassment of walking into town with a Moabitess. Oh, you're going to be a burden. What am I going to do with you? But she had no idea that God had provided a very unexpected companion for the journey. And perhaps some of you in your life, someone has come alongside that you would never have picked. If you're the captain of the dodgeball team, you don't choose that one. But be mindful. Be aware. Perhaps God is bringing someone into your life that you would not select on your own to be the blessing that transcends anything you can imagine or expect. Well, that brings us to Ruth chapter 2 now. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, what we're told is that he is a worthy man. My translation says, your translation might say, a man of means, a man of valor, a man of value, a man of nobility. This word is really hard to translate. It's two words put together. Boaz is gibor chayil. He is a, a, a man of valor. He's a hero. He has wisdom. He has wealth. He has nobility. He has notoriety. He's a good guy. He's a stud. He's upstanding in his community. But oh no, remember, this is the third leg of the Bethlehem trilogy. This is the last hope of somebody decent in the world. Is he going to turn out to be a knuckle-dragging evildoer? I guess we'll have to see. We're told about this Boaz that he has great reputation and renown. He walks through his field and he greets his harvesters and his gleaners. And he says, Yahweh be with you. And they say, and Yahweh be with you. They greet him. He's a robust, kind of a get-her-done kind of a guy. And he sees, as he's walking through his field, this woman who's not from around these parts. And he goes to his foreman and says, hey, Mickey, because I'm sure that was his name. Hey, who's the, who's the chick out in the fields? And he says, oh, yeah, she's a gal from Moab. We, 
I don't know what she's doing here. We think she came here with Naomi. She asked if she could glean in our fields, and we said yes, because that's the law and the custom of the day. You leave the corners of your fields ungleaned, unharvested, so that the poor can come and get from the corners and be fed. It's God's social services program. You leave the corners and the poor can come. And Boaz says, hmm, then make sure she stays close to the other girls and to you and do not touch her. And then he repeats himself, make sure no one lays a finger on her. Why does he have to say this? Because she's in danger. She is a Moabitess. If anyone harms her, there are no consequences. She's barely even a human in those days. Now, that's astonishing when you realize that it's Naomi, her mother-in-law, that says, yeah, get out there, go glean for us, with no real regard for her safety. She was in peril. She was a hated Moabitess. She could have been picked off and abused and harmed or worse very easily. But Boaz has to tell her twice, stay close. No one's going to harm you. Stay close. No one's going to harm you. She, she's invited to come and have a meal with him. She is invited to dip her bread in the wine, which is a, an extension of grace and a very grand courtesy. And he gives her roasted grain to eat until she is fully satisfied. This is not a courtesy you typically extend to a foreign woman. Well, she responds because she recognizes his kindness. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 10, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you have left your father and mother and your native land and come to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh, repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That is super significant. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have confronted me and spoken kindly, or comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now, this is really astonishing. He says that you have come and God, the covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh, my God, wants to give you protection, wants to give you place, wants to give you identity. He wants to spread his wing over you. Boaz uses the word kanaf. God wants to spread his wing over you like a hen takes care of her chicks. God wants to bring you in and comfort you and provide for you. Now, that's an amazing foreshadowing. As we get to the end of the Old Testament, we meet a prophet named Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, we are told that there will one day be a Messiah that will come, and he will rise like the sun, and he will have healing in his wings, a kanaf. And then we get into the Gospels. And in Luke chapter 8, we're told the story about Jesus walking through the streets of Capernaum. And a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, hopeless and helpless, reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, which is called the kanaf. What is foreshadowed in the book of Ruth by Boaz, foretold in the prophet Malachi, the gospel writers tell us Jesus is the one who brings healing in his wings. This is what we're told to find. Well, the exchange with Ruth and Boaz goes like this. Hey, I know you're going to go back home, Ruth. Here, take 30 pounds, an ephah of grain. Take it back with you. Don't go home empty-handed. Ruth walks in, and Naomi says, and I quote, Yahtzee, where'd you get all that grain? That's like a full ephah. That's a lot. Hmm, something's going on here. 
Those numbers are not wasted. This happens during the time of Judges, and unfortunately, we are told that Israel never once practices the feasts of Israel during the time of the Judges. Not the feasts of Pentecost, of booths, of weeks, of tabernacles, nothing. They never do it. But a ephah of barley is what is to be offered as a fellowship wave offering for the community. Naomi knows this, and she recognizes that God is providing a fellowship offering for the entire community through Ruth. Will God really provide? Will God really provide as he has always promised he would? Which brings me to my point for chapter 2. Trust God with everything you've got. Trust God with everything you've got. That means day by day, moment by moment, every choice is built upon and based upon the understanding and the recognition that God will come through. That God will come through. You don't have to scheme or be devious or try to plan another way around. God will provide. Trust him with everything you've got. Stay on the path. Be obedient even when it looks like there's another solution. Trust God with everything you've got. Which brings us then to chapter 3, really sort of the significant hinge of the story. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Naomi thinks, hmm, I'm almost out of time. A wave offering has been provided. Feast of Pentecost should be coming up. I'm running out of time. I have to take matters into my own hands. If it's to be, it's up to me. I don't trust that God will really come through. I know he's good and he's God and all that. Yeah, but really, I've got to engage here. So she comes up with a plan. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. That is, slather yourself. Get all of your oils, whether they are essential or not, and completely smear them all over your person. you got to smell really nice. And put on your cloak. Bad translation. This is put on your wedding dress. It's very garish, very forward, very aggressive. Ruth, here's what you're going to do. Get all cleaned up, get all slathered up with perfume, and put on your wedding dress. Gee, what could that possibly mean? And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man. Hide yourself until he's finished eating and drinking. Oh, no. How is this story going to end? This is the third leg of the Bethlehem trilogy. Are things about to get really, really awful in Bethlehem? But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, a lot's been made of what does that mean to uncover his feet. Is it a very strong, aggressive, physical advance? Not exactly. It's sort of a cultural approach. But then we're going to hear something that's really astonishing. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. She's humbly submitted. Now, can you imagine the fear that she has going out at night, dressed up as she is, in the night of night, the Hebrews is not just at midnight, in the night of night, when everybody knows nothing good happens after midnight. That's what my parents said. They were right. She's got to be afraid. She's got to be humiliated and ashamed that she's going down to initiate this interchange. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. This is the third piece of bad advice that Naomi's given her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Here we go. Here's the tension. 
what's going to happen? Is the last good guy in Israel going to do a dastardly deed and ruin everything? How is this going to go? Verse 8. Perhaps one of the funniest verses in your entire Bible. Verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. <laughs> Been there. No, I'm kidding. I really haven't. It's never, it's never happened. It's never once has that ever happened to me, I swear. That's just weird. Holmes goes to sleep and wake up. Ah, there's a chick at my feet. That, that doesn't happen every time. Something's going on here. And to soften us up after that wonderfully humorous passage is perhaps one of the most beautiful verses in all of your Bible. Ruth chapter 3, verse 9 is amazing. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your kanaf. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. She comes vulnerable, weak, and submissive and says, if you don't give me your protection, I'm lost. By the way, this is my conversion story. This is the gospel. If you do not come and provide covering for me, I'm lost. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I'm hapless. Spread your protective wing over me or I have nothing. And Boaz says, yes. It's a great model of conversion. All that I am, all that I can do, all that I have is nothing if you will not cover me. And the answer is yes. She recognizes from what he said earlier, God wants to cover you with his wing. She says, you are my covering. You are my redeemer. She uses the technical term. You are my goel. You are the one that can save me. The story is the same for us. God wants to rescue, to provide covering we have the opportunity to look at the Redeemer that he has sent and say, if you do not cover me, I am lost. He said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a Redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have, gone, have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman, are a worthy woman. Now it is true that I am a redeemer. And yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Boaz goes on to tell her, hey, listen, I can redeem you, but there's another relative who's even closer in family than I am. Stay here. Nothing's going to happen. I'm not going to take advantage of you, although I could. I'm stronger. I'm a man of renown and in re reputation. I'm a man of means. I'm an Israelite. This is my home. This is my property. You're a Moabitess who's a widow, who is barren, damaged goods, a foreign race. He could have done whatever he wanted and never been caught. But this last good guy demonstrates his character. He says, no, you go home, gives her some more grain, stick out your wedding dress. She does. And he loads her down with barley again and sends her home. She walks in. Naomi says, well, how did it go? Whoa, you got grain. What's going to happen here? She says, well, he said there's someone closer, but that he's going to resolve it. And Naomi says, sit tight. He will resolve this today. Scene change, chapter 4. Here we go. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Why? Because that's where the elders, the leaders, the rulers, the men of importance and influence, that's where they sat. He sat down at the gate, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, he came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. This verse is packed. 
This is the one guy in the entire book who is not named. Even pukey and wanting are named in this book. Even full mane of hair is named in this book. But this guy's not named. Boaz literally says, hey, uh, Poloni Almoni is the Hebrew. Yeah, 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 yeah. Poloni Almoni. It's, uh, hey, you, what's your face? Come here. It's so-and-so, the nameless one. And we're being told that this guy is going to earn his namelessness. Here's the deal. Boaz says, you may have heard that Naomi has come back and her land is available. You're the closest kinsman redeemer, the closest goel. It's your right first. You come before me. Do you want to buy the land? And what's his face? Says, ooh, more land, more property, more, more investments, more assets. Yes, I think I will redeem that. Because here's the deal. In the book of Leviticus, it's already been told that the land that is apportioned to each family is to stay in that family forever, no matter what. Even if it's lost or sold or whatever, you can always get it back at least every seven years and certainly every 50 years. And so to give Naomi a heritage and a lineage, she's able to get that land back if someone purchases it for her. And then they sort of share that inheritance. And he says, yes, I'll do it. And Boaz says, great, then you redeem it. Oh, but... Uh, uh, one more thing. I, I, I may have forgot to mention this. Um, it comes with a Moabite. <laughs> yeah, did I not mention it? Yeah, yeah. It comes with a Moabite. Her name's Ruth. Yeah, she's, uh, she's a widow. Uh, she's from Moab. So, you know, she's one of them. Oh, and, and she's barren. And she's from the most hated race in all of Israel. We, we hate her. But she's going to be your wife. So sign here. Press hard. Third copy's yours. And the guy's like, whoa, 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 a Moabite? No, 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 I'm out on that deal. I am not willing to risk my estate, my energy, my resources. I don't want to share my stuff with her. She's not worth it. Boaz, you redeem it. Boaz says, I'll do it. And then the text explains to us that in those days, to complete a transaction in the city gate, when a kinsman redeemer does that, he takes off his sandal and hands it over. So what's his face? Takes off his sandal, hands it to Boaz, and says, you're going to be the redeemer. Now the book of Leviticus says that Naomi would have been in her rights to walk up to what's his face and spit in his face because he failed to do his job. See, he had been in Bethlehem alongside Boaz and experienced the same season of plenty and of bounty and of prosperity. And yet, he was not changed by that good environment, which leads me to my observation for chapter 4. It goes like this. A changed man can change his world, but a better world does not make a better man. We, we strive so hard sometimes to improve our environment but what's-his-face lived in a really good, prosperous, God-blessed environment, and it did not change his heart. But we're introduced to a man named Boaz, who was a changed man, and he changes his world, and not the other way around. Well, this takes us then to Ruth chapter 4 and in verse 11. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house. This gets me like Rachel and Leah. Do, do you hear the redemption here? This foreign, widowed, barren, pagan, idolatrous Moabite. May she be like the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, that's full circle. That's redemption. 
who together built up the house of Israel, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of <laughs> Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. All of the people recognize this is another instance where God has brought forth beauty from ashes because that's the kind of God that he is. He is the God of surprising grace, of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz takes Ruth, he marries her, makes an honest woman of her, they conceive, and all of the women come around Naomi, and they name the child Obed, and they place Obed, <laughs> it's kind of weird, but the text is exceedingly graphic, they place the child in Naomi's lap, and she becomes the nurse of her grandson. Now, I'm just going to tell you, that didn't happen at my house, and it probably shouldn't happen at yours, but it's an astonishing picture to say that this redemption has even impacted Naomi's physical body. God in his surprising grace has redeemed even that. She is involved in this child's life. She becomes the child's wet nurse. And they say that this woman, Ruth, Naomi, she is better than seven sons. This Moabite, idolatrous, barren widow, she is better for you than seven Israelite sons. What a blessing. And so the writer of Ruth, I think it's Samuel, goes on to say, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Who was Boaz's mother? As best we can tell, Boaz's parents were Salmon and a foreign Canaanite woman named Rahab. Where did Rahab learn this care and concern? God has been working all throughout history to bring about redemption. Because though there exists error and evil in the world, sin is no match for God's grace. Now, why are we studying this passage on Ruth in the middle of Advent? It's Christmas time. Shouldn't we be talking about more Christmassy kinds of things? Oh, there is nothing more Christmassy than this story. All of these women that we've studied so far, these Gentile women are attaching their hopes, their faith bound to a Jewish man in hopes of a Messiah, of a conqueror, of a redeemer, of a king and a son. Which, by the way, in our day and age is exactly what the church does. This Gentile woman, if you will, that looks to Jesus to, to be the hope who is Messiah, conqueror, redeemer, king, and son. Their hope is our hope. I've already told you how much I can relate to Tamar, how I relate to Rahab, and I can also tell you I relate to Ruth. Let me explain. You see, in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that Boaz is a gibor chayil. He's a man of valor, wealth and wisdom, means and might. But Ruth, in chapter 2, verse 10, describes herself as a foreigner. Why would you have mercy on me? A foreigner. It's a bad translation. The word she uses is actually nokria. Why, Boaz, would you take any notice or interest in me? I'm just a nokria, which is a shocking word. You see, in the Hebrew canon of Scripture, not in our Bibles, but in the Hebrew Bible, it goes like this. Joshua, Judges, Proverbs, Ruth. 
In Hebrew Bible, the book of Proverbs comes before the book of Ruth. And all through the book of Proverbs, King Solomon writes to his son and says over and over again, beware the adulterous woman. Beware the woman of questionable repute. Beware, beware, beware. All through Proverbs, particularly in chapters 6 and 7. And the word is nokria. Beware the nokria. Beware the nokria. You have to watch out for the nokria. And then we get into the third leg of the Bethlehem trilogy and we meet a nokria. How is this going to go? She even calls herself a nokria. But you also might know that at the end of the book of Proverbs, the final chapter is chapter 31. And we're introduced to what we call the Proverbs 31 woman that I think Solomon is writing about his own mother. And that woman is described as chayil, noble, worthy, valiant, honorable, noble. And Boaz turns to Ruth in chapter 3, verse 11, and says, Oh, no, 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 no. You are not Nokria. I declare you Chayil. It's the same way Boaz is described. He imputes that to her, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Which leads me to my final point. It goes like this. What your Redeemer says about you supersedes your history. <laughs> and that's good news. See, that's justification, where God finds me guilty and declares me righteous. And he imparts and he imputes the character of the Redeemer. Jesus is chayil, he is noble, he is courageous, he is confident. And he says, you, Eric, are a loser, but I love you, and I now impute this character to you. And I say, whoa, 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 what about all the wreckage? What about all the sin? What about all my proneness to wander, to leave the God I love? And he says, I know. But what I say about you supersedes your history. That's the power of the Redeemer. And that's the surprising grace of Christmas. What a gift. Because I can look in my rearview mirror and see all of the wreckage that I have created in my own life and those around me. And yet, the voice of my Redeemer is stronger than my past. What a gift. I don't care what else you get this Christmas. Your wrong has been undone. Surprising grace. So if you're here this morning, I want to say Merry Christmas. And if you are still holding on to some hope that you yourself can scheme, devise, and accomplish your own confidence, courage, and competence, our Bible, what we believe is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word, says that you cannot, you will not. You cannot achieve your own standing before God. But the gift of Christmas is that the Redeemer, just like Boaz, has come and he's gone global. He says, I know about all your issues, all of it, yeah, even that. I am willing to spread my wing, my kanaf over you, if you will have it. So I can ask, do you believe? Would you unwrap that package this Christmas? I pray that you will have the courage to ask God if it's true that he sent his redeemer to save you. And for the rest of you, perhaps you've been a believer for a very, very long time. I met a man this morning, and he said, today, today is my 80th Christian birthday. I've been a Christian for 80 years. And he started crying. He said, I love it. And this grace has never stopped surprising me. I wonder if you are still surprised by grace. And perhaps you have left the path. There's grace for that, and it will surprise you. Be shocked and awed all over again. And so I want to leave us this morning with the same question that we ended last night's live nativity with. 
Really, only one last question. Do you believe? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. But not because we're so clever that we figured it out. It's because you loved us first in the midst of our sin and shame and error. In the midst of all of our widowhood and barrenness and idolatry and rebellion. You stepped into our midst because you looked at this Moabite and you said you're worth it. So, Father, I thank you for declaring worth where it did not exist previously. And, Father, if there is anyone here this morning that does not know you, I pray, God, that you will move irresistibly by your Spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, that they would have the submissiveness, the humility, the clarity, and the candor to ask for you, through Jesus, to spread your wing over them and to redeem them, to buy them back from the clutches of sin and death. And for the rest of us, Father, who perhaps have gotten stuck in the, the rut and the monotony of the season and of life, would you surprise us all over again that you are the God of second chances. You give grace and merit and favor where it is not deserved. And may we shine as the Christmas lights of the season. God, we love you because you first loved us. We pray all this the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks again so much for being with us this morning. I trust, I hope, I pray that God has spoken to you this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand for word of benediction. I want to remind you about our Bethlehem concert this evening on our South Campus. Please come back. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll be talking about Bathsheba, the mother of the king. Now, may the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good work. May you have courage to do it. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.